0: Chapter 7. A Chapter of Red Herrings Thence came forth Maul, a giant. This Maul did use to spoil young pilgrims with sophistry. Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress From the admission that God exists, and is the author of nature, it by no means follows that miracles must, or even can, occur. God himself might be a being of such a kind that it was contrary to his character to work miracles. Or again, he might have made nature the sort of thing that cannot be added to, subtracted from, or modified. The case against miracles accordingly relies on two different grounds. You either think that the character of God excludes them, or that the character of nature excludes them. We will begin with the second, which is the more popular ground. In this chapter, I shall consider forms of it which are, in my opinion, very superficial, which might even be called misunderstandings or red herrings. The first red herring is this. Any day you may hear a man, and not necessarily a disbeliever in God, say of some alleged miracle, No, of course I don't believe that. We know it is contrary to the laws of nature. People could believe it in olden times because they didn't know the laws of nature. We know now that it is a scientific impossibility. By laws of nature, such a man means, I think, the observed course of nature. If he means anything more than that, he is not the plain man I take him for, but a philosophic naturalist, and will be dealt with in the next chapter. The man I have in view believes that mere experience, and especially those artificially contrived experiences, which we call experiments, can tell us what regularly happens in nature, and he thinks that what we have discovered excludes the possibility of a miracle. This is a confusion of mind. Granted that miracles can occur, it is, of course, for experience to say whether one has done so on any given occasion. But mere experience, even if prolonged for a million years, cannot tell us whether the thing is possible. Experiment finds out what regularly happens in nature, the norm or rule to which she works. Those who believe in miracles are not denying that there is such a norm or rule. They are only saying that it can be suspended. A miracle is, by definition, an exception. How can the discovery of the rule tell you whether, granted a sufficient cause, the rule can be suspended? If we said that the rule was A, then experience might refute us by discovering that it was B. If we said that there was no rule, then experience might refute us by observing that there is. But we are saying neither of these things. We agree that there is a rule, and that the rule is B. What has that got to do with the question whether the rule can be suspended? You reply, But experience shows that it never has. We reply, Even if that were so, this would not prove that it never can. But does experience show that it never has? The world is full of stories of people who say they have experienced miracles. Perhaps the stories are false. Perhaps they are true. But before you can decide on that historical question, you must first, as was pointed out in chapter 1, Discover whether the thing is possible, and if possible, how probable. The idea that the progress of science has somehow altered this question is closely bound up with the idea that people, in olden times, believed in them because they didn't know the laws of nature. Thus you will hear people say, The early Christians believed that Christ was the son of a virgin, but we now know that this is a scientific impossibility. Such people seem to have an idea that belief in miracles arose at a period when men were so ignorant of the course of nature that they did not perceive a miracle to be contrary to it. A moment's thought shows this to be nonsense, and the story of the virgin birth is a particularly striking example. When St. Joseph discovered that his fiancée was going to have a baby, he not unnaturally decided to repudiate her. Why? Because he knew just as well as any modern gynecologist that in the ordinary course of nature, women do not have babies unless they have lain with men. No doubt the modern gynecologist knows several things about birth and beginning which St. Joseph did not know, but those things do not concern the main point, that a virgin birth is contrary to the course of nature. And St. Joseph obviously knew that. In any sense in which it is true to say now, the thing is scientifically impossible, he would have said the same. The thing always was, and always was known to be, impossible unless the regular processes of nature were, in this particular case, being overruled or supplemented by something from beyond nature. When St. Joseph finally accepted the view that his fiancé's pregnancy was due not to unchastity but to a miracle, he accepted the miracle as something contrary to the known order of nature. All records of miracles teach the same thing. In such stories, the miracles excite fear and wonder, that is what the very word miracle implies, among the spectators, and are taken as evidence of supernatural power. If they were not known to be contrary to the laws of nature, how could they suggest the presence of the supernatural? How could they be surprising unless they were seen to be exceptions to the rules? And how can anything be seen to be an exception till the rules are known? If there ever were men who did not know the laws of nature at all, they would have no idea of a miracle and feel no particular interest in one if it were performed before them. Nothing can seem extraordinary until you have discovered what is ordinary. Belief in miracles, far from depending on an ignorance of the laws of nature, is only possible insofar as those laws are known. We have already seen that if you begin by ruling out the supernatural, you will perceive no miracles, We must now add that you will equally perceive no miracles until you believe that nature works according to regular laws. If you have not yet noticed that the sun always rises in the east, you will see nothing miraculous about his rising one morning in the west. If the miracles were offered us as events that normally occurred, then the progress of science, whose business is to tell us what normally occurs, would render belief in them gradually harder and finally impossible. The progress of science has, in just this way, and greatly to our benefit, made all sorts of things incredible which our ancestors believed. Man-eating ants and griffins and scythia, men with one single gigantic foot, magnetic islands that draw all ships towards them, mermaids and fire-breathing dragons. But those things were never put forward as supernatural interruptions of the course of nature. They were put forward as items within her ordinary course, in fact as science. Later and better science has therefore rightly removed them. Miracles are in a wholly different position. If there were fire-breathing dragons, our big-game hunters would find them, but no one ever pretended that the virgin birth or Christ walking on the water could be reckoned on to recur. When a thing professes from the very outset to be a unique invasion of nature by something from outside, increasing knowledge of nature can never make it either more or less credible than it was at the beginning. In this sense, it is mere confusion of thought to suppose that advancing science has made it harder for us to accept miracles, We always knew they were contrary to the natural course of events. We know still that if there is something beyond nature, they are possible. Those are the bare bones of the question. Time and progress and science and civilization have not altered them in the least. The grounds for belief and disbelief are the same today as they were 2,000 or 10,000 years ago. If St. Joseph had lacked faith to trust God or humility to perceive the holiness of his spouse, he could have disbelieved in the miraculous origin of her son as easily as any modern man and any modern man who believes in God can accept the miracle as easily as St. Joseph did. You and I may not agree, even by the end of this book, as to whether miracles happen or not, but at least let us not talk nonsense. Let us not allow vague rhetoric about the march of science to fool us into supposing that the most complicated account of birth, in terms of genes and spermatozoa, leaves us any more convinced than we were before that nature does not send babies to young women who know not a man. The second red herring is this. Many people say, They could believe in miracles in olden times because they had a false conception of the universe. They thought the earth was the largest thing in it and man the most important creature. It therefore seemed reasonable to suppose that the creator was specially interested in man and might even interrupt the course of nature for his benefit. But now that we know the real immensity of the universe, now that we perceive our own planet and even the whole solar system to be only a speck, it becomes ludicrous to believe in them any longer. We have discovered our insignificance and can no longer suppose that God is so drastically concerned in our petty affairs. Whatever its value may be as an argument, it may be stated at once that this view is quite wrong about facts. The immensity of the universe is not a recent discovery. More than 1,700 years ago, Ptolemy taught that in relation to the distance of the fixed stars, the whole Earth must be regarded as a point with no magnitude. His astronomical system was universally accepted in the Dark and Middle Ages. The insignificance of Earth was as much a commonplace to Boethius, King Alfred, Dante, and Chaucer as it is to Mr. H.G. Wells, or Professor Haldane. Statements to the contrary in modern books are due to ignorance. The real question is quite different from what we commonly suppose. The real question is why the spatial insignificance of Earth, after being asserted by Christian philosophers, sung by Christian poets, and commented on by Christian moralists for some 15 centuries without the slightest suspicion that it conflicted with their theology, should suddenly in quite modern times have been set up as a stock argument against Christianity and enjoyed in that capacity a brilliant career. I will offer a guess at the answer to this question presently. For the moment, let us consider the strength of this stock argument. When the doctor at a post-mortem looks at the dead man's organs and diagnoses poison, he has a clear idea of the different state in which the organs would have been if the man had died a natural death. If from the vastness of the universe and the smallness of earth we diagnose that Christianity is false, we ought to have a clear idea of the sort of universe we should have expected if it were true. But have we? Whatever space may really be, it is certain that our perceptions make it appear three-dimensional and to a three-dimensional space no boundaries are conceivable. By the very forms of our perceptions, therefore, we must feel as if we lived somewhere in infinite space, and whatever size the earth happens to be, it must of course be very small in comparison with infinity. And this infinite space must either be empty or contain bodies. If it were empty, or if it contained nothing but our own sun, then that vast vacancy would certainly be used as an argument against the very existence of God. Why, it would be asked, should he create one speck and leave all the rest of space to non-entity? If, on the other hand, we find, as we actually do, countless bodies floating in space, they must be either habitable or uninhabitable. Now, the odd thing is that both alternatives are equally used as objections to Christianity. If the universe is teeming with life other than ours, then this, we are told, makes it quite ridiculous to believe that God could be so concerned with the human race as to come down from heaven and be made man for its redemption. If, on the other hand, our planet is really unique in harboring organic life, then this is thought to prove that life is only an accidental byproduct in the universe, and so again to disprove our religion. It seems that we are hard to please. We treat God as the police treat a man when he is arrested. Whatever he does will be used in evidence against him. This kind of objection to the Christian faith is not really based on the observed nature of the actual universe at all. You can make it without waiting to find out what the universe is like, for it will fit any kind of universe we choose to imagine. The doctor here can diagnose poison without looking at the corpse, for he has a theory of poison which he will maintain whatever the state of the organs turns out to be. The reason why we cannot even imagine a universe so built as to exclude these objections is, perhaps, as follows. Man is a finite creature who has sense enough to know that he is finite. Therefore, on any conceivable view, he finds himself dwarfed by reality as a whole. He is also a derivative being. The cause of his existence lies not in himself, but immediately, in his parents, and ultimately, either in the character of nature as a whole, or, if there is a God, in God. But there must be something, whether it be God or the totality of nature, which exists in its own right or goes on of its own accord, not as the product of causes beyond itself, but simply because it does. In the face of that something, whichever it turns out to be, man must feel his own derived existence to be unimportant, irrelevant, almost accidental. There is no question of religious people fancying that all exists for man, and scientific people discovering that it does not. Whether the ultimate and inexplicable being, that which simply is, turns out to be God or the whole show, of course it does not exist for us. On either view, we are faced with something which existed before the human race appeared and will exist after the earth has become uninhabitable, which is utterly independent of us, though we are totally dependent on it, and which, through vast ranges of its being, has no relevance to our own hopes and fears. For no man was, I suppose, ever so mad as to think that man, or all creation, filled the divine mind. If we are a small thing to space and time, space and time are a much smaller thing to God. It is a profound mistake to imagine that Christianity ever intended to dissipate the bewilderment and even the terror, the sense of our own nothingness, which come upon us when we think about the nature of things. It comes to intensify them. Without such sensations, there is no religion. Many a man, brought up in the glib profession of some shallow form of Christianity, who comes through reading astronomy to realize for the first time how majestically indifferent most reality is to man, and who perhaps abandons his religion on that account, may at that moment be having his first genuinely religious experience. Christianity does not involve the belief that all things were made for man. It does involve the belief that God loves man and for his sake became man and died. I have not yet succeeded in seeing how what we know and have known since the days of Ptolemy about the size of the universe affects the credibility of this doctrine one way or the other. The skeptic asks how we can believe that God so came down to this one tiny planet. The question would be embarrassing if we knew 1. that there are rational creatures on any of the other bodies that float in space 2. that they have, like us, fallen and need redemption 3. that their redemption must be in the same mode as ours 4. that redemption in this mode has been withheld from them But we know none of them. The universe may be full of happy lives that never needed redemption. It may be full of lives that have been redeemed in modes suitable to their condition, of which we can form no conception. It may be full of lives that have been redeemed in the very same mode as our own. It may be full of things quite other than life in which God is interested, though we are not. If it is maintained that anything so small as the earth must, in any event, be too unimportant to merit the love of the Creator, we reply that no Christian ever supposed we did merit it. Christ did not die for men because they were intrinsically worth dying for, but because He is intrinsically love and therefore loves infinitely. And what, after all, does the size of a world or a creature tell us about its importance or value? There is no doubt that we feel the incongruity of supposing, say, that the planet Earth might be more important than the great nebula in Andromeda. On the other hand, we are all equally certain that only a lunatic would think a man six feet high necessarily more important than a man five feet high, or a horse necessarily more important than a man, or a man's legs than his brain. In other words, this supposed ratio of size to importance feels plausible only when one of the sizes involved is very great, and that betrays the true basis of this type of thought. When a relation is perceived by reason, it is perceived to hold good universally. If our reason told us that size was proportional to importance, then small differences in size would be accompanied by small differences in importance, just as surely as great differences in size were accompanied by great differences in importance. Here, a six-foot man would have to be slightly more valuable than a man of five feet, and your leg slightly more important than your brain, which everyone knows to be nonsense. The conclusion is inevitable. The importance that we attach to great differences of size is an affair not of reason but of emotion, of that peculiar emotion which superiorities in size begin to produce in us only after a certain point of absolute size has been reached. We are inveterate poets. When a quantity is very great, we cease to regard it as a mere quantity. Our imaginations awake. Instead of mere quantity, we now have a quality, the sublime, But for this, the merely arithmetical greatness of the galaxy would be no more impressive than the figures in an account book. To a mind which did not share our emotions and lacked our imaginative energies, the argument against Christianity from the size of the universe would be simply unintelligible. It is therefore from ourselves that the material universe derives its power to overawe us. Men of sensibility look up on the night sky with awe. Brutal and stupid men do not. When the silence of the eternal spaces terrified Pascal, it was Pascal's own greatness that enabled them to do so. To be frightened by the bigness of the nebulae is, almost literally, to be frightened at our own shadow. For light years and geological periods are mere arithmetic until the shadow of man, the poet, the maker of myths, falls upon them. As a Christian, I do not say we are wrong to tremble at that shadow, for I believe it to be the shadow of an image of God. But if the vastness of nature ever threatens to overcrow our spirits, we must remember that it is only nature spiritualized by human imagination which does so. This suggests a possible answer to the question raised a few pages ago, Why the size of the universe, known for centuries, should first in modern times become an argument against Christianity? Has it perhaps done so because in modern times the imagination has become more sensitive to bigness? From this point of view, the argument from size might almost be regarded as a byproduct of the romantic movement in poetry. In addition to the absolute increase of imaginative vitality on this topic, there has pretty certainly been a decline on others. Any reader of old poetry can see that brightness appealed to ancient and medieval man more than bigness, and more than it does to us. Medieval thinkers believe that the stars must be somehow superior to the Earth because they looked bright, and it did not. Moderns think that the galaxy ought to be more important than the Earth because it is bigger. Both states of mind can produce good poetry. Both can supply mental pictures which rouse very respectable emotions, emotions of awe, humility, or exhilaration. But taken as serious philosophical argument, both are ridiculous. The atheist's argument from size is, in fact, an instance of just that picture-thinking to which, as we shall see in a later chapter, the Christian is not committed. It is the particular mode in which picture-thinking appears in the 20th century, for what we fondly call primitive errors do not pass away, they merely change their form. Chapter 8. Miracle and the Laws of Nature It's a very odd thing, as odd as can be, that whatever Miss T eats turns into Miss T. Walter de la Mare Having cleared out of the way those objections which are based on a popular and confused notion that the progress of science has somehow made the world safe against miracle, we must now consider the subject on a somewhat deeper level. The question is whether nature can be known to be of such a kind that supernatural interferences with her are impossible. She is already known to be, in general, regular. She behaves according to fixed laws, many of which have been discovered, and which interlock with one another. There is, in this discussion, no question of mere failure or inaccuracy to keep these laws on the part of nature, no question of chancy or spontaneous variation. The only question is whether, granting the existence of a power outside nature, there is any intrinsic absurdity in the idea of its intervening to produce within nature events which the regular going-on of the whole natural system would never have produced. Three conceptions of the laws of nature have been held. One, that they are mere brute facts, known only by observation, with no discoverable rhyme or reason about them. We know that nature behaves thus and thus. We do not know why she does and see no reason why she should not do the opposite. Two, that they are applications of the law of averages. The foundations of nature are in the random and lawless, but the number of units we are dealing with are so enormous that the behavior of these crowds, like the behavior of very large masses of men, can be calculated with practical accuracy. What we call impossible events are events so overwhelmingly improbable by actuarial standards that we do not need to take them into account. Three, that the fundamental laws of physics are really what we call necessary truths, like the truths of mathematics. In other words, that if we clearly understand what we are saying, we shall see that the opposite would be meaningless nonsense. Thus it is a law that when one billiard ball shoves another, the amount of momentum lost by the first ball must exactly equal the amount gained by the second. People who hold that the laws of nature are necessary truths would say that all we have done is to split up the single event into two halves, adventures of ball A and adventures of ball B, and then discover that the two sides of the account balance. When we understand this, we see that of course they must balance, The fundamental laws are in the long run merely statements that every event is itself and not some different event. It will at once be clear that the first of these three theories gives no assurance against miracles, indeed no assurance that, even apart from miracles, the laws which we have hitherto observed will be obeyed tomorrow. If we have no notion why a thing happens, then of course we know no reason why it should not be otherwise, and therefore have no certainty that it might not someday be otherwise. The second theory, which depends on the law of averages, is in the same position. The assurance it gives us is of the same general kind as our assurance that a coin tossed a thousand times will not give the same result, say, 900 times, and that the longer you toss it, the more nearly the numbers of heads and tails will come to being equal. But this is so, only provided the coin is an honest coin. If it is a loaded coin, our expectations may be disappointed. But the people who believe in miracles are maintaining precisely that the coin is loaded. The expectations, based on the law of averages, will work only for undoctored nature, and the question whether miracles occur is just the question whether nature is ever doctored. The third view, that laws of nature are necessary truths, seems at first sight to present an insurmountable obstacle to miracle. The breaking of them would, in that case, be a self-contradiction, and not even omnipotence can do what is self-contradictory. Therefore the laws cannot be broken, and therefore shall we conclude no miracle can ever occur? We have gone too quickly. It is certain that the billiard balls will behave in a particular way, just as it is certain that if you divide a shilling unequally between two recipients, then A's share must exceed the half and B's share fall short of it by exactly the same amount, provided, of course, that A does not by sleight of hand steal some of B's pennies at the very moment of the transaction. In the same way, you know what will happen to the two billiard balls, provided nothing interferes. If one ball encounters a roughness in the cloth, which the other does not, their motion will not illustrate the law in the way you had expected. Of course, what happens as a result of the roughness in the cloth will illustrate the law in some other way, but your original prediction will have been false. Or again, if I snatch up a cue and give one of the balls a little help, you will get a third result. And that third result will equally illustrate the laws of physics, and equally falsify your prediction. I shall have spoiled the experiment. All interferences leave the law perfectly true, but every prediction of what will happen in a given instance is made under the proviso, other things being equal, or if there are no interferences. Whether other things are equal in a given case and whether interferences may occur is another matter. The arithmetician, as an arithmetician, does not know how likely A is to steal some of B's pennies when the shilling is being divided. You had better ask a criminologist. The physicist, as a physicist, does not know how likely I am to catch up a cue and spoil his experiment with the billiard balls. You had better ask someone who knows me. In the same way, the physicist, as such, does not know how likely it is that some supernatural power is going to interfere with them. You had better ask a metaphysician. But the physicist does know, just because he is a physicist, that if the billiard balls are tampered with by any agency, natural or supernatural, which he had not taken into account, then their behavior must differ from what he expected. Not because the law is false, but because it is true. The more certain we are of the law, the more clearly we know that if new factors have been introduced, the results will vary accordingly. What we do not know, as physicists, is whether supernatural power might be one of the new factors. If the laws of nature are necessary truths, no miracle can break them but then no miracle needs to break them. It is with them as with the laws of arithmetic. If I put six pennies into a drawer on Monday and six more on Tuesday, the laws decree that, other things being equal, I shall find twelve pennies there on Wednesday. But if the drawer has been robbed, I may in fact find only two. Something will have been broken, the lock of the drawer or the laws of England, but the laws of arithmetic will not have been broken. The new situation created by the thief will illustrate the laws of arithmetic just as well as the original situation. But if God comes to work miracles, he comes like a thief in the night. Miracle is, from the point of view of the scientist, a form of doctoring, tampering, if you like, cheating. It introduces a new factor into the situation, namely supernatural force, which the scientist had not reckoned on. He calculates what will happen, or what must have happened on a past occasion, in the belief that the situation, at that point of space and time, is or was A. But if supernatural force has been added, then the situation really is or was AB, And no one knows better than the scientist that AB cannot yield the same result as A. The necessary truth of the laws, far from making it impossible that miracles should occur, makes it certain that if the supernatural is operating, they must occur. For if the natural situation by itself, and the natural situation plus something else, yielded only the same result, it would be then that we should be faced with a lawless and unsystematic universe. The better you know that 2 and 2 makes 4, the better you know that 2 and 3 don't. This perhaps helps to make a little clearer what the laws of nature really are. We are in the habit of talking as if they caused events to happen, but they have never caused any event at all. The laws of motion do not set billiard balls moving. They analyze the motion after something else, say a man with a cue, or a lurch of the liner, or perhaps supernatural power, has provided it. They produce no events. They state the pattern to which every event, if only it can be induced to happen, must conform, just as the rules of arithmetic state the pattern to which all transactions with money must conform, if only you can get hold of any money. Thus, in one sense, the laws of nature cover the whole field of space and time. In another, what they leave out is precisely the whole real universe, the incessant torrent of actual events which make up true history. That must come from somewhere else. To think the laws can produce it is like thinking that you can create real money by simply doing sums. For every law in the last resort says, if you have A, then you will get B. But first, catch your A. The laws won't do it for you. It is therefore inaccurate to define a miracle as something that breaks the laws of nature. It doesn't. If I knock out my pipe, I alter the position of a great many atoms, in the long run and to an infinitesimal degree, of all the atoms there are. Nature digests or assimilates this event with perfect ease and harmonizes it in a twinkling with all other events. It is one more bit of raw material for the laws to apply to, and they apply. I have simply thrown one event into the general cataract of events and it finds itself at home there and conforms to all other events. If God annihilates or creates or deflects a unit of matter, he has created a new situation at that point. Immediately, all nature domiciles this new situation, makes it at home in her realm, adapts all other events to it. It finds itself conforming to all the laws. If God creates a miraculous spermatozoan in the body of a virgin, it does not proceed to break any laws. The laws at once take it over. Nature is ready. Pregnancy follows, according to all the normal laws, and nine months later, a child is born. We see every day that physical nature is not in the least incommoded by the daily inrush of events from biological nature or from psychological nature if events ever come from beyond nature altogether she will be no more incommoded by them be sure she will rush to the point where she is invaded as the defensive forces rush to a cut in our finger and there hasten to accommodate the newcomer the moment it enters her realm it obeys all her laws miraculous wine will intoxicate miraculous conception will lead to pregnancy Inspired books will suffer all the ordinary processes of textual corruption. Miraculous bread will be digested. The divine art of miracle is not an art of suspending the pattern to which events conform, but of feeding new events into that pattern. It does not violate the law's proviso, if A, then B. It says, but this time, instead of A, A two, And nature, speaking through all her laws, replies, then B two and naturalizes the immigrant, as she well knows how. She is an accomplished hostess. A miracle is emphatically not an event without cause or without results. Its cause is the activity of God. Its results follow according to natural law. In the forward direction, that is, during the time which follows its occurrence, it is interlocked with all nature, just like any other event. Its peculiarity is that it is not in that way interlocked backwards, interlocked with the previous history of nature. And this is just what some people find intolerable. The reason they find it intolerable is that they start by taking nature to be the whole of reality, and they are sure that all reality must be interrelated and consistent. I agree with them, but I think they have mistaken a partial system within reality, namely nature, for the whole. That being so, the miracle and the previous history of nature may be interlocked after all, but not in the way the naturalist expected, rather in a much more roundabout fashion. The great complex event called nature, and the new particular event introduced into it by the miracle, are related by their common origin in God, and doubtless, if we knew enough, most intricately related in his purpose and design, so that a nature which had had a different history, and therefore had been a different nature, would have been invaded by different miracles, or by none at all. In that way, the miracle and the previous course of nature are as well interlocked as any other two realities, but you must go back as far as their common creator to find the interlocking. You will not find it within nature. The same sort of thing happens with any partial system. The behavior of fishes which are being studied in a tank makes a relatively closed system. Now suppose that the tank is shaken by a bomb in the neighborhood of the laboratory. The behavior of the fishes will now be no longer fully explicable by what was going on in the tank before the bomb fell. There will be a failure of backward interlocking. This does not mean that the bomb and the previous history of events within the tank are totally and finally unrelated. It does mean that to find their relation, you must go back to the much larger reality which includes both the tank and the bomb, the reality of wartime England in which bombs are falling, but some laboratories are still at work. You would never find it within the history of the tank. In the same way, the miracle is not naturally interlocked in the backward direction. To find how it is interlocked with the previous history of nature, you must replace both nature and the miracle in a larger context. Everything is connected with everything else, but not all things are connected by the short and straight roads we expected. The rightful demand that all reality should be consistent and systematic does not therefore exclude miracles, but it has a very valuable contribution to make to our conception of them. It reminds us that miracles, if they occur, must, like all events, be revelations of the total harmony of all that exists. Nothing arbitrary, nothing simply stuck on and left unreconciled with the texture of total reality can be admitted. By definition, miracles must, of course, interrupt the usual course of nature. But if they are real, they must, in the very act of so doing, assert all the more the unity and self-consistency of total reality at some deeper level. They will not be like unmetrical lumps of prose breaking the unity of a poem. They will be like that crowning metrical audacity which, though it may be paralleled nowhere else in the poem yet, coming just where it does and affecting just what it affects, is, to those who understand, the supreme revelation of the unity in the poet's conception. If what we call nature is modified by supernatural power, then we may be sure that the capability of being so modified is of the essence of nature, that the total event, if we could grasp it, would turn out to involve, by its very character, the possibility of such modifications. If nature brings forth miracles, then doubtless it is as natural for her to do so when impregnated by the masculine force beyond her as it is for a woman to bear children to a man. In calling them miracles, we do not mean that they are contradictions or outrages. We mean that, left to her own resources, she could never produce them. Chapter 9. A Chapter Not Strictly Necessary We saw the giants, the sons of Anak, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Numbers 13.33 The last two chapters have been concerned with objections to miracle, made, so to speak, from the side of nature, made on the ground that she is the sort of system which could not admit miracles. Our next step, if we followed a strict order, would be to consider objections from the opposite side, in fact, to inquire whether what is beyond nature can reasonably be supposed to be the sort of being that could or would work miracles. But I find myself strongly disposed to turn aside and face first an objection of a different sort. It is a purely emotional one, Severe readers may skip this chapter, but I know it is one which weighed very heavily with me at a certain period of my life, and if others have passed through the same experience, they may care to read of it. One of the things that held me back from supernaturalism was a deep repugnance to the view of nature which, as I thought, supernaturalism entailed. I passionately desired that nature should exist on her own. The idea that she had been made, and could be altered, by God, seemed to take from her all that spontaneity which I found so refreshing. In order to breathe freely, I wanted to feel that, in nature, one reached at last something that simply was. The thought that she had been manufactured or put there, and put there with a purpose, was suffocating. I wrote a poem in those days about a sunrise, I remember, in which, after describing the scene, I added that some people like to believe that there was a spirit behind it all, and that this spirit was communicating with them. But, said I, that was exactly what I did not want. The poem was not much good, and I have forgotten most of it, but it ended up by saying how much rather I would feel that in their own right earth and sky continually do dance for their own sakes and here crept i to watch the world by chance by chance one could not bear to feel that the sunrise had been in any way arranged or had anything to do with oneself to find that it had not simply happened that it had been somehow contrived would be as bad as finding that the field mouse i saw beside some lonely hedge was really a clockwork mouse put there to amuse me or worse still to point some moral lesson. The Greek poet asks, If water sticks in your throat, what will you take to wash it down? I likewise asked, If nature herself proves artificial, where will you go to seek wildness? Where is the real out-of-doors? To find that all the woods and small streams in the middle of the woods and odd corners of mountain valleys and the wind and the grass were only a sort of scenery, only backcloth for some kind of play, and that play perhaps one with a moral, what flatness, what an anti-climax, what an unendurable bore! The cure of this mood began years ago, But I must record that the cure was not complete until I began to study this question of miracles. At every stage in the writing of this book, I have found my idea of nature becoming more vivid and more concrete. I set out on a work which seemed to involve reducing her status and undermining her walls at every turn. The paradoxical result is a growing sensation that if I am not very careful, she will become the heroine of my book. She has never seemed to me more great or more real than at this moment. The reason is not far to seek. As long as one is a naturalist, nature is only a word for everything and everything is not a subject about which anything very interesting can be said, or, save by illusion, felt. One aspect of things strikes us, and we talk of the peace of nature. Another strikes us, and we talk of her cruelty. And then, because we falsely take her for the ultimate and self-existent fact, and cannot quite repress our high instinct to worship the self-existent, we are all at sea, and our moods fluctuate, and nature means to us whatever we please as the moods select and slur. But everything becomes different when we recognize that nature is a creature, a created thing, with its own particular tang or flavor. There is no need any longer to select and slur. It is not in her, but in something far beyond her, that all lines meet and all contrasts are explained. It is no more baffling that the creature called nature should be both fair and cruel than that the first man you meet in the train should be a dishonest grocer and a kind husband. For she is not the absolute. She is one of the creatures, with her good points and her bad points and her own unmistakable flavor running through them all. To say that God has created her is not to say that she is unreal, but precisely that she is real. Would you make God thus creative than Shakespeare or Dickens? What he creates is created in the round. It is far more concrete than Falstaff or Sam Weller. The theologians certainly tell us that he created nature freely. They mean that he was not forced to do so by any external necessity. But we must not interpret freedom negatively, as if nature were a mere construction of parts arbitrarily stuck together. God's creative freedom is to be conceived as the freedom of a poet, the freedom to create a consistent, positive thing with its own inimitable flavor. Shakespeare need not create Falstaff, but if he does, Falstaff must be fat. God need not create this nature. He might have created others. He may have created others. But granted this nature, then doubtless no smallest part of her is there except because it expresses the character he chose to give her. It would be a miserable error to suppose that the dimensions of space and time, the death and rebirth of vegetation, the unity and multiplicity of organisms, the union and opposition of sexes, and the color of each particular apple in Herefordshire this autumn were merely a collection of useful devices forcibly welded together. They are the very idiom, almost the facial expression, the smell or taste of an individual thing. The quality of nature is present in them all, just as the latinity of Latin is present in every inflection or the corregiosity of Correggio in every stroke of the brush. Nature is by human, and probably by divine, standards partly good and partly evil. We Christians believe that she has been corrupted, but the same tang or flavor runs through both her corruptions and her excellences. Everything is in character. Falstaff does not sin in the same way as Othello. Othello's fall bears a close relation to his virtues. If Perdita had fallen, she would not have been bad in the same way as Lady Macbeth. If Lady Macbeth had remained good, her goodness would have been quite different from that of Perdita. The evils we see in nature are, so to speak, the evils proper to this nature. Her very character decreed that if she were corrupted, the corruption would take this form and not another. The horrors of parasitism and the glories of motherhood are good and evil worked out of the same basic theme or idea. I spoke just now about the latinity of Latin. It is more evident to us than it can have been to the Romans. The Englishness of English is audible only to those who know some other language as well. In the same way and for the same reason, only supernaturalists really see nature You must go a little way from her and then turn around and look back. Then at last the true landscape will become visible. You must have tasted, however briefly, the pure water from beyond the world before you can be distinctly conscious of the hot, salty tang of nature's current. To treat her as God or as everything is to lose the whole pith and pleasure of her. Come out, look back, and then you will see this astonishing cataract of bears, babies, and bananas, this immoderate deluge of atoms, orchids, oranges, cancers, canaries, fleas, gases, tornadoes, and toads. How could you ever have thought this was the ultimate reality? How could you ever have thought that it was merely a stage set for the moral drama of men and women? She is herself. Offer her neither worship nor contempt. Meet her and know her. If we are immortal, and if she is doomed, as the science tell us, to run down and die, we shall miss this half-shy and half-flamboyant creature, this ogress, this hoyden, this incorrigible fairy, this dumb witch. But the theologians tell us that she, like ourselves, is to be redeemed. The vanity to which she was subjected was her disease, not her essence. She will be cured, but cured in character, not tamed, heaven forbid, nor sterilized. We shall still be able to recognize our old enemy, friend, playfellow, and foster mother, so perfected as to be not less, but more herself. And that will be a merry meeting.